Once pulp stories were the world of tawdry paperbacks. Dimestore novels on cheap paper fiddled sex and violence. B-movies on a double bill or midnight showings at the drive-in. Two-fisted heroes who get the dame and save the day. Then they had to grow up, get respectable. The teenagers who fell in love with them went to college, got jobs, had kids, but they never let go of their love for these stories. They just wanted to be a little more respectable, a little less lurid. Something that you won't be embarrassed by, but still deliver the same thrills as when you were a kid. The same instinct that led to the Snyderverse, a drive for dark and adult as markers of seriousness, also came for noir. Grim stories that looked to one-up the shock value. No longer was the detective just investigating murder. It was drug addicts, serial killers, rapists, and pedophiles. As if by being as bleak as possible, they can finally prove that these stories aren't just pulp. Tonight's episode covers two such examples. The A-Picture, Gone Baby Gone from 2007, and the much pulpier, A Walk Among the Tombstones from 2014. While the films may have diverging aspirations, they represent the new heights of depravity noir looks to plumb in order to stay relevant. Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. Just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all. So you're a private detective? I didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like, uh, your opinion, man. Step aside like a nice fella and let us do our job. What's in it for me? Nobody got hurt. I'm saying I think they died quickly, though, so I don't think that they got hurt. Ladies, it's okay with me. Hello, and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films and then talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Tristan Johnson, joined by my friend, Fred Pelzer. And tonight, it's going to be various shades of dark, grim, and bleak with our double bill. To start, let's look at Ben Affleck's directorial debut, Gone Baby Gone. to the bed. She goes across to Dottie's, then she comes home and Amanda is gone. Who would take my little girl? She never hurt anybody. A four-year-old child is on the street. If we don't catch the abductor by day one, only about 10% are ever solved. This is day three. Adapted from noted crime writer Dennis Lehane's novel by Affleck and Aaron Stockard, it stars Casey Affleck along with Michelle Monaghan, returning after uh, just a few episodes ago, Morgan Freeman, Ed Harris, Amy Ryan, and Titus Welliver. The plot follows Affleck and Monaghan as two small-time PIs who normally track down bond jumpers but get pulled into the sensational case of a little girl from the neighborhood who goes missing from her home in the middle of the night. Despite everyone telling him not to, Affleck gets in deep with the case and over his head, since no one is telling the truth. All right, personal experience. I don't think either of us have seen this before, or had you seen this? I, I had seen this. You had um, seen this. Okay. Um, right, right when it came out, I mm. might have seen this in theaters, honestly. Uh, and I have certainly not seen it since. Well, I, I have not seen it, but um, let's see. I did see Argo. I'm trying to think of Affleck's directorial career uh, the, since then. The, the town, the town, uh, yes, which we will yeah. inevitably talk about at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, Live by Night. I did not see. I have not seen that. And I think that's his entire body of work to this point. Yeah, uh, this this kicked it off for him. This kicks it off, um, and it was it was a very important movie for him. Um, not only because it was his first, but because it it really 
helped turn around his uh, uh, his career at the mid 2000s. Yes, I mean, just some context. You know, this movie was well received at the time and helped Affleck, the elder Affleck, transition to working as a respected director after a fallow period in his career, circa Daredevil and Geely. And and looking just in a, a few years later, he's going to go on and win a Best Picture. Like like everything's going well for Ben Affleck starting starting here. This is the the comeback, the turnaround. And it's it's solid. It's really solid. It helps that it's drawing from Dustin Lane. I don't know if you've read any Lane. I've read a few of his books. Um, he's a great I crime writer. I have not read any Lane, and I am I'm a bit anxious to because knowing the other. Um, knowing knowing other works that he's done, I am I'm not such a, a fan. I don't really like Mystic River or Shutter Island at all. Oh sure. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if that's um, I, and for different reasons um, for for both of them. And I I think that uh, that Gone Baby Gone, um, while I can see a lot of uh, certain elements of those carried over, it doesn't it doesn't bother me like those two do. And again, for totally different reasons. Sure. I mean, I feel, I mean, I'm not the most read person in his body of work, but I feel like Gone Baby Gone, is a, Gone Baby Gone is a closer representation of the mean. Yeah, I don't have a a, a, a firm grasp on, yeah, I don't, I don't know his, his tone. I don't know, um, I, I guess I can guess at certain hallmarks, but Shutter Island feels so distinctly different from... Mm-hmm. From this or from Mystic River, I can see this in Mystic River. I was say, Mystic River feels pretty, yeah, like that, that. all feels a little bit more of a piece, yeah. I think, with with the other stuff that I've read of his. Although I had not read this book, the the movie itself, I mean, it's just a pretty classic, like it's just very grounded, right? But it's a classic PI in over his head, everybody's lying, going from clue to clue. Um, also, I think I mentioned it in the thing, but. Uh, um, uh, what's the name from the wire also pops up as a cop like two thirds of the way through. Uh, oh, Michael. Um, uh, oh, Michael Kenneth Williams. Oh, Michael Kenneth Williams. Yes. Yeah, yes, of course. Yes. He just like he suddenly popped up at that funeral and there's like an, a shot of him and I was like, what's he doing in this movie? You don't just introduce him two thirds of the way through and you're like, well, he's here for one scene, but we're gonna act like he's been a long standing part of this conversation. Huh. Well, um, well, he, well, he'll be showing up again on our, uh, uh, on mm. our podcast, uh, before this season is out, but also in a, a fairly, I fairly forgot that he was, uh, that he was in that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was fun uh, to see him pop up, but anyway, so, uh, so yeah, this movie, um, I mean, let's, I guess let's just start with the, uh, to me, it definitely felt like a film built on its reveals, right? Like, it's, um, oh my goodness. Yes. It is. It, it, it's something that's very, very heavily conceived on the, on the turns. And, uh, and, and of course there's like, there's the, the, the lingering, um, Morgan Freeman's here. Oh, that's a classic to it law and you, order guest star of the week. Like, you don't put Morgan Freeman in for this small of a role, right? Um, no, the moment the the moment that sees and, and when when things kind of hit the the midway point of the movie and and I do it feel it picks up a lot of of intensity and I think the the set piece in the woods leading um, leading up to the kind of jump into the water and uh, and and find retrieving the the doll and every every case going cold all of that just like boom boom boom. Um, Morgan Freeman steps aside out of the picture, and something's, of course, 
just not right about that. Because we're watching a movie and it's only half done, and you're just like, well, this is interesting. I mean, and, and to be fair, like, it is not the direction I expected. I expected once they tried to um, get the 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 local drug dealer to give up the kid because the um, Amy Ryan had, had double-crossed him, I was like, okay, and then we're going to move on to some other angle, and then we didn't. And it was it definitely was, um, you know, so it kept me on kept me on my toes, but it was still sort of a like, we all know what kind of movie we're watching. We know how much time is left in this movie, roughly. Like, uh, there's I, only so much you can fool fool somebody. And I like I like that you you dropped Law and Order in too because because it does feel like like this this movie in many ways feels like that that feature length version of what what people what people go to SVU for, right? Like that kind of same, same pleasure. Affleck, Lehane, they're, they're channeling a lot of those, those kind of beats and, and reveals and, and pleasures and, and what they've got put together here. I mean, did, did those reveals and twists work for you? Yeah, I think, um, I, I think they do. And, and to me, it's all like, um, it, to me, all of this is in service to the, the, the big moral question that it sets up at the end. Like, um, does, does Casey Affleck make the right choice? And well, what is the right choice? But what is the right choice? Well, and I, I, I don't know about you. I guess this is getting into a, a different aspect of it. But I, the film seems to have a, a clear perspective uh, to me that that he makes the wrong choice at the at the very end. Um, but I think that's just how the, his final scene with Amy Ryan is played. When uh, and and right. uh, I suppose we. We're we're jumping into major spoiler territory here. But... No, but it's especially here, yeah. Like they get the kid back. So as we kind of implied, it turns out that this was all a scheme between Ed Harris's Nolan's cop and <laughs> Morgan Freeman and Titus Welliver that this kid is being mistreated by her mom, who's a drug addict and this that and the other thing, and um <clears throat> devise a scheme to kind of kidnap her and place her with Morgan Freeman who lost his own daughter and you know they're not gonna they're not gonna fail another kid damn it um and then uh but they uh, Casey Affleck figures this out and then everybody's just sort of like well you can call the state troopers or you can let this little girl stay in a family unit that actually cares about her and will give her the love and support she needs um yeah, I did think that they dragged that point on a long time between the... Because A, you're already... I feel like you're already pretty ahead of the movie, and you're already like, yeah, Morgan Freeman's got the kid. And then... Especially because the other thing is that it, they keep hitting the, like, I lost my daughter, and nobody else will ever lose their daughter. I made a promise, or whatever, <laughs> you know. And you're like, uh... interesting that we keep coming back to this point. Um and so and, and it, it plays uh, for, until you realize where until you realize where they're going with it it plays really kind of sappy um and mm. and it feels like i and i find the i find the opening the opening narration by by casey affleck a little bit too much too mawkish mm -hmm. i just it doesn't it doesn't work for me and then morgan freeman's pontificating feels and then and then there's there's a larger there's a there's a larger point that's underlying what it's what what it's doing but i i it's it's just hitting it so hard that 
um, that I, I don't love that element of it, but yeah. still it sets up an interesting, an interesting moral uh, dilemma that, that I wish the film just went a little bit more ambiguous on where it stood mm-hmm. on at the end. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that the, the end actually does help pull it back a little bit just because it does relatively underplay that final moment compared to the ethics lecture that we kind of get oh, well. leading up to his decision. But it, I do agree that it is, you know, if the ending I don't, is... I don't, but, but they, Amy Ryan goes so, so hard in that last scene to sure. just be like, like as, as, um, as bad of a mother as possible. Right. Uh, and, and, um, and while it's not the same kind of spelling it out, at least it's not, it's not verbally spelling it out, but she's, She's once again abandoning her child, making bad decisions. Sort of the movie ended with him just having to decide, right? Like where the movie ended with Casey Affleck confronted with his choice. Right. I think I think that would have been to me that would have been the stronger Mm -hmm. way to end. But I'm I'm all for the the open ending and you know what would you do, audience? Yeah, let the audience come to their own conclusion. yeah, because I think the other thing, too, is that the movie never really gives, like, concrete support to Casey Affleck's committed belief in, like, she belongs with a mother. Like, what... Uh, I'm sorry, everybody, you're going to hear me do a lot of terrible Boston accents as we discussed in the movie. <laughs> um, but, you know, he's just, like, constantly being, like, family the mother and you're just like what what where are you drawing this from the relationships we see in this movie are poisoned like why fred oh fred i'm and i'm gonna i'm gonna um take us quickly onto a tangent because you have just put this into my head Mm -hmm. but because because you were talking about doing terrible accents Mm -hmm. i need to just make it known that i had my first dream about our podcast um please continue and we were we were delivering a, uh, our, our podcast to a live audience. Wow. Um, uh, it's very special. We had Your probably 50 or so people there. It does. Um, and, and w- I don't remember what this was. Maybe it was inspired by our, our last episode with, uh, with nice guys, but whatever it was, I wrote into there a, a quote from Richard Nixon and you, Fred, read it and decided to continue embellishing on it and did a full bit as Richard Nixon. Sounds like me. And the audience went wild and it was like, it was so fulfilling and so gratifying wow. all in front of a live audience. And then they all left and wouldn't even attend the Q and a afterward. <laughs> I mean, that sounds right. And uh, Jenova. <laughs> <laughs> that, no, that's fantastic. <laughs> I, I, I love it. Please keep me up to date on what else our dream selves get up to. Yes, uh, it was the first, maybe first of many, hopefully. Um, back, <laughs> back to Boston. Back to Boston. Uh, no, yeah, the, um, yeah, no, I agree. It is, it is definitely like a little, it, it never articulates a good counter argument, right? Like it never, I don't know, I was never convinced of like, man, you know what? Like Amy Ryan's really is going to turn it around and, I mean, she does seem to be in a better place, but she still is not like, oh, that kid is really on her own. So, yeah, um, I, I'd agree. Now, what I think is, what I think is an interesting dynamic that the the film stumbles onto is is what reverses so much of what we've we 
seen up to this point where we have a law enforcement that are willing to to bend the law for the greater good but not uh and in in a way they're not doing things they're they're trying to do things not you know not by the book but in service to to something like really what they see as really noble and we have the this detective who is trying to to play to the letter of the law and he's new and and an experience and it just creates a, a really fascinating dynamic i think between the veteran law enforcement officers and an athlete coming in um i i enjoyed that that collision quite a bit i definitely i agree the scenes between him and ed harris were my favorites i think ed harris is just doing great work in this and you know i'll, I'll i can't speak to the authenticity of his new orleans persona but um <laughs> but i think he he's definitely a highlight of the film and, and every scene that the two of them were getting to do together, I, I enjoyed quite a bit. Yeah, I think, no, I, I, authenticity. I, I think, I think in, in New Orleans personas, he, he, he fit fine. He did, he did all right. Uh, Let the good times roll, right? Like, isn't uh, that, uh, <laughs> doesn't that speak to your experience as a, I, I don't have enough, of the city? <laughs> I don't have enough New Orleans law enforcement experience. Oh, well, there you go. Probably a good thing. Also, New Orleans, the New Orleans-Boston mashup. That's an interesting mm. Yeah, this is an interesting choice. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, it's, I don't know. It is, it is um, um, nice. We're getting a little break from uh, the Inland Empire this week. We, we That's also true, yeah. A lot of LA, a lot of California. Back in the East uh, Coast. Haven't, haven't done Boston yet, so, uh, you know, it's refreshing to... to out of the same waters we've been in. What did you think of Casey Affleck in this? I think he's I think he's good. Uh, he he does really convey the 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 inexperienced uh, persona that is required of this this kind of role. I I am in agreement though with you that it just does it doesn't give him the same uh, the reasons to work with to mm-hmm. really develop. Uh, a, a, a good counterbalance to uh, to you know why he would make that choice in the end. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think this feels very in his wheel. But you're right. I think this feels very in his wheelhouse. Like, uh, you know, anguished, well-meaning, but emotionally stunted, maybe. And you know, like uh, Manchester by the Sea, certainly cut from a similar cloth and set in Boston. Yeah. It, yes. Um, and, uh, and I found, I found myself, especially after, uh, after last week with Shane Black, I found myself really sad that Michelle Monaghan gets kind of sidelined midway oh, through yeah. the, the movie here and, and barely has anything to do after that. Cause, uh, even, she's, be- even in the first half, she doesn't have much to do. No, she's, she's present, but she's, she just isn't driving much, uh, much of anything. And, you know, I'm happy, happy to see her. And I think she's a, a far more talented actress than the materials allowing her to show off. Yeah. I mean, she's pretty much there functionally so that Affleck has something to lose when he makes this choice. Yeah. It, it um, comes at a personal cost for him to stand by his inexplicable, uh, principles. Yes. Um, Uh, and what what about uh, Amy Ryan for you? Uh, I always I always enjoy Amy Ryan. You know, I mean, it's like a big character, 
what um, I think she's doing with the movies asking of her. And, you know, I, I did not like her character, which I think is what the movie wants. Oh, I think I definitely think so. She got she got herself a supporting actress nomination and wow. for that. And what I recall was 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 a, a real barn burner of a, a race back in 2007 because that was uh, that was Kate uh, or that was yeah Kate Blanchett and I'm not there and um, mm. and Ruby D and uh, American Gangster and Saoirse Ronan in Atonement and. Um, and wow. uh, and then um, the winner was um, was Tilda in uh, in Michael Clayton, right? Um, and and I think Amy Ryan won like a ton of the precursor awards leading, leading up to that too. But um, but you know, don't don't talk about that. Tilson, that that was a great performance. Yeah, it was a good, that was a good category. Uh, I, I, I remember that because it was like the first year I was like hyper dialed in and I was like, I'm going to watch every, every Oscar mm. nominee. And, um, yeah, it sounds like you. Yeah. Sounds like me. <laughs> uh, yeah. This takes me right back to the, like the, the first year I was like, I like, I'm going to, I'm going to do it all. I'm going to go see everything in theaters. And, uh, I think it was a few years yeah. after this that I really started getting, aggressive about it i feel like 2009 2010 was when i <clears throat> obviously didn't watch this uh and i've never been as as good or as thorough as you i've always had my line where i'm like yeah, so I'll, I'll, you know i'll try and watch the stuff that i'm really interested in in time for the oscars but i'm not gonna sit down and watch a movie that i don't think i'm uh, gonna like Letterbox tells me that 2007 was my high water mark actually it's it's oh, the, yeah. the, the the year i've seen the most movies from so so it was all downhill after this. Uh, I think 2020 was the year that I watched the most movies oh, from that year. Wow. Yeah. My, my letterbox is like a gradual incline. And then from like 2014, it just really escalates. And like even 2020 or maybe 2021 was the year that it just like peaks. I watched like 150 movies from that year or something. Holy and then, cow. Um, oh, that's way. I, I haven't seen oh, that. I think also. That's probably in count. That doesn't probably count shorts. It probably is closer to like a hundred for just features. So maybe a couple, maybe a couple of those mini series on there too. You know, Letterbox is a little, yeah, yeah. a little lazy. Uh, but yeah, I definitely benefited from the pandemic and no uh, sleepless nights with an infant and no commute time for working from home. All that kind of compiled and. I just watched a lot of movies and everything was getting released to streaming. So I didn't have to go to a theater. So I just watched a lot of movies. Well, <clears throat> worst place to pass the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about this no, movie. I don't no. know. I feel like uh, the, I, like the ending and the twist, right. Or like the real, I don't know. The, there's a couple of good set pieces. I thought the, um, them busting into the, uh, where the, the pedophile is hiding out was was well done and you know it yeah. tastefully handled yeah, the rape was... and murder of a child uh no that that that's true and i was i was just thinking how like that that seems to be like a, a lahane hallmark he really likes to have the he likes to populate the the fringes with drug dealers and pedophiles and uh and um junkies and uh um, that's his. At least that seems to be uh, <laughs> definitely a a thing that I that, that between here and Mystic River kind of 
carries over. Yeah, no, it's it's you know his his style of writing is is bleak, and so I think it suits the this this movie and this moment and and its approach well. Um, yeah, it's just all like solid, right? I don't know. There's nothing that like blew me away or got me really excited. Um, but right, it's got got some. It's a good it's a good uh, comeback vehicle for for Affleck as a director. It's got some some really quality performances in it. You can see why the Academy would embrace it to a degree. You can see why people would would um, would be like that that Affleck kid. He knows what he's doing. He's he's, he's back. Yeah, and it's you know. If it was on TNT at two o'clock in the Sunday afternoon, it wouldn't be a terrible thing to like start watching in the middle and be like, okay, I, I can see what's going on and some men yeah. are going to do some stuff. Right on. Um, and, I, and it's definitely set up quite differently than our, our next entry. Uh, uh, certainly wildly different aspirations, as you pointed out. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, no, not at all. So that takes us to A Walk Among the Tombstones. Senior private detective. I'm licensed. I do favors for people. In return, they give me gifts. So, what can I do for you? Someone's kidnapped my wife. I pay them, but they killed her anyway. I want you to find the man who did this and bring them to me. Whoever it was took your wife. Didn't just pick your name out of a hat. I've been following her. I know your schedule. They've done this before. They're going to do it again. All right. Written and directed by Scott Frank, based on a novel by Lawrence Block. Uh, this movie stars Liam Neeson, Dan Stevens, David Harbour, and Boyd Holbrook. Uh, I. As the movie, I had like I knew it was a, a Liam Neeson as from his action phase. I did not realize what the supporting cast was until I started watching it, and then every time somebody popped up, I was like, "Holy shit!" Yeah, look who it uh, is. I'm I'm not gonna lie, I was kind of pleasantly surprised by this. Yeah, it, it scratched an itch. It was what I was looking for, it and I, what and it was doing, and it delivered. Damn it, it did. And you know what? Is maybe that's that's what latter era Liam Neeson is all about. He he's just he's he's there to deliver exactly what you want. Nothing well, more, nothing less. So we just as we're recording this, the trailer for Marlowe, which comes out in like a month, finally got released. It seems like the studio's trying to bury this because it was supposed to come out, I don't know, six months ago or something. It's supposed to be like an awards contender, potential awards contender for you know, at least for nominations. I don't think anything would win anything. But then it started going out to the festivals and did not get reviewed well. Um, but it is really funny to be like, okay, this is kind of, you know, a modern retro noir Marlowe retelling. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, and there's Liam Neeson doing his action thing in the trailer, just throwing yep. some guys around, 75-year-old Liam Neeson or however old he is. Uh, it's like, yeah, you know, give the people what they want, I guess. That's exactly um, what they want. And they certainly do it here too. So uh, Walk Among the Tombstones. Former cop and recovering alcoholic Matt Scudder, played by Neeson, works as a kind of P.I. As he puts it, he does things for people and they give him things in return. A fellow addict, Holbrook, brings him in to help a drug dealer brother whose wife was kidnapped, later murdered, despite the ransom being accepted. 
Scudder soon finds himself on the trail of a couple of serial killers who target the rich and criminal for both money and sick kicks and must stop them before they hurt a little girl. Uh, so yeah, uh, as we talked about, what a surprising cast. I think this actually is a movie that we neither of us had seen before. Nope. I just remember, I remember when it came out, people being I, like, this is one of the better Liam Neeson movies. I, it went right past me. I did not know that this existed at all until uh, until you uh, you um, selected it for this uh, yeah. programming. Yeah, I heard um, critics kind of calling out that it was like not just a straight action movie and it is kind of a, you know, that is a noir and that it's mixing some stuff together. And, and you know, Scott Frank is a very talented writer-director. And uh, so I think that helps as well. But that, you know, that he also clearly loves the genre and loves this source material. And so, um, so yeah, I was and, less uh, surprised after I, after I watched this, when I realized that, that he did Queen's Gambit, which I, I certainly yes. like put a bit in. Um, and, and, uh, Godless. That was his other uh, Netflix I haven't seen that show. Uh, uh, uh and he's, yeah. he had a long writing career before that as well. Um, but yeah, um, no, so some context for the movie, as I mentioned, this is an adaptation. Uh, it's book number 10 out of 20. Uh, and there was a previous Scudder adaptation, Eight Million Ways to Die, starring Jeff Bridges, which we decided not to do. We kind of went a little light on the 80s, uh, which is when that came out. Um, it would have been actually kind of interesting to do that one just because it is. Well, no, no, I'm thinking of Cutter's Way. Um, but uh, anyway, we decided not to do that one. They kind of changed it from the book a little bit. Um, so we just kind of went went past it. Maybe we'll, we'll return to it another time. Um, but yeah, the, the books themselves have been coming out for I don't know, 30 years at this point and have kind of moved through time as, as they've been released. So, you know, a younger Scudder was going to be Jeff Bridges. Um, this book, which was originally written in 92, uh, had been in development for a while. And at one point, Harrison Ford was attached to star in a decent role, like, I don't know, 10 five, ten years earlier. Um, and then also in the adaptation, they apparently cut a, a romance subplot that was sort of an, an ongoing character either was introduced in this book and continued on or was in a previous book and uh. continued into this one. And then but they decided to cut that, but they did keep the kid who is a recurring character from this point forward. Uh, that makes sense. I can I can totally see that. Honestly, I was I was a little nervous when the kid showed up because I yes. didn't I, right. I to, didn't to be, want Dear, dear listener, it is a, a uh, young black man, and you're like, oh, this could go real poorly. Yeah, uh, yeah, was um, was really wondering what we were in store for. But I actually think I think that um, that as far as uh, you know, having a, a sidekick um, to pop in and out occasionally, I think it worked out worked out pretty well. Uh, honestly, I think that the the film. It, you know, resists its worst impulses, and no one's no one's going to say that it's a masterpiece or anything. But uh, but it um, it just knows how to get down and have some good genre fun. Yeah, I think it helps that Neeson is sort of perfected this like gruff man of action who delivers wisdom with a fist, and then uh, he's up against David Harbor doing his best absolute fucking creep. Uh, mode and it, it works like Harbor is as a man he, hanging out in his whitey tidies that likes to kidnap, rape, and kill and butcher women. Like, 
He's got uh, Harper is is just going wild here. He's and having he's fun. He knows what movies he's in. Enjoying it. Yeah, he absolutely does. Um, and and I think I, I feel like Dan Stevens can be slotted in anywhere you want him to be, and he oh, just. Yeah. I mean, just, I'm a like, big since uh, uh, Downton Abbey. I've I've loved Dan Stevens, and so anytime he pops up anywhere, I am very excited. Yeah, agreed. I I like him a lot. Um, uh, big big fan of the guest. Big fan of um of him and Legion. Um, but like I feel like He's whatever a lot of fun in uh that Will Ferrell Eurovision movie. Oh, I have not seen that. He's um, great. He steals the movie. I, he's so funny. I feel like you, anywhere you put him, he's gonna he's gonna adapt to the movie. He's whatever the movie needs him to be. He rises mm-hmm. to the occasion. Um, and and I like I wasn't sure if he was gonna be. But like the villain here, or Steve, I I didn't know who to expect out of what role in, going into this. Um, but but it all it all uh, came together. Uh, Harbor really ank- You needed someone to be really odious. I think yes, that is um, the word for it. Yeah, and and he certainly had that in spades. Um, you, I mean, you just uh, what a, what a what a creepy persona and. Uh, and you really needed to to be rooting for the his downfall by, mm-hmm. by the, the time we get to the third act. Yeah, and unlike our last movie, there's not a lot of twists here. It's pretty straightforward. It's just mainly it's about like Neeson Scudder being smart and kind of going from point to point, tracking these guys down. Right? It's very much a process movie, um, and it's very much a like this clue leads to that clue leads to that clue. And now I've got them. And meanwhile, they introduce the ticking clock of them taking a new victim. And of course, this time it's a young, it's a young girl, not just a, uh, you know, it's not bad enough that they're kidnapping women, but now they're kidnapping young girls. Oh, God. Um, but, you know, the movie, I will, I don't know, like, if respect's the right word, but, uh, you know, the movie has the strength of its convictions to, like, chop off some fingers from the little girl to prove that she's alive and, like, really do it. <laughs> They really want you to feel that her life is at stake. Yes, indeed. Uh, how um, how how do you feel about the AA angle? It's it's interesting. So again, I'm kind of just going off of Wikipedia for background on the adaptation, but the um, I was suspecting there had to be some that if. It, you know, being part of a series, that's got to be like an ongoing kind of... Yeah, so the, I think the flashback plot, right? is a reference to an event in an earlier book. I think around book five, Scudder hits his low point as a cop, and or is already not a cop. Or no, no, wait, I'm misremembering. He's already off the force by this point, but he, like, there's an initial run of books, and at the end of this run of books he goes to his first aa meeting and like admits that he's an alcoholic like he has just been in the bottle for the first chunk of books um and apparently the plan was that was going to be the end of the series and he was going to go on and do other crime crime books but then he 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 he, he couldn't kick he couldn't stay off the wagon when it came to scudder the author and so um uh Lawrence Block that is couldn't couldn't kick Scudder. So he for, I think he first wrote like a novella or a short story returning to Scudder and then it was just like, you know what? I think he's got a future even after he goes to AA and continued continued writing books. And so he'd been in AA at a at a couple points. I think but I think at this point, especially once the adaptation was made, like it's a defining characteristic of 
the character um, in, I would imagine in sort of a similar way to a lot of people were really upset that Tom Cruise got cast as Jack Reacher because like the identity of Jack Reacher is based on the fact that he is a human brick house that is like 6'6 and 200 pounds or whatever. It's like, it doesn't matter what, what Tom Cruise is trying to sell. Like, that's just not who he is physically. Um, unlike the the later, the the, mo- the recent Amazon TV adaptation, which satisfied everybody because the the male lead is 6'4 and 200 pounds. Like, that's eh, close enough. He's physically imposing enough to believe that he could just dominate a room. So anyway, it just seems like that's sort of a, like a built-in part of the character's identity. And so if if it had not been included... I feel like fans would have cried foul. That I, that makes a lot of sense, and and I think that the that's also simultaneously the part of the movie that that doesn't land for me. But it's not because of it, that exists at all. It's because they go so heavy later on with like yeah. detailing the steps. It's it feels like such a a strange forced choice. The final cross cutting sequence is is a little odd. Um, I, I don't know where the impulse to do that came from because it could have. It didn't need it. It didn't. I mean, I think it's supposed to give him like an arc, you know, that it is not that he was ever in question of of lapsing, but um, mm-hmm. you know, I think it like, or maybe not give him an arc, kind of replaces an arc, and it kind of gives an added emotional intensity to the ending. That like, you know, a reminder that. His his battles are both internal and external, and every day is that you don't drink as a win as an alcoholic, or however the. Um, so I feel like that kind of is maybe the impulse there, because you know, again, it is book ten out of twenty. Like he's scutter's going to scutter, right? And it is definitely as I feel like as we've uh, I think we've talked about it previously, and with with several episodes, a lot of these twenty first century, uh, even some of the nineties adaptations, going back to. Um, Easy Rollins in Devil in a Blue Dress, like the the later era of pulp fiction and crime novels that these detective stories are drawing on are a little bit more locked into the serialization, right? Where the original like Marlowe or Sam Spade, those were all standalone, like truly standalone books any single one, Mickey, uh, my camera only has his girl Friday to roll with him from one book to the next. And maybe a, a, a character pops up here and there, but it feels like really starting with the more recent PI adaptations, it's a like universe of characters and is going to be ongoing and they're going to build on each other. And it's going to be a chronology and, um, and it's, it's all, you know, going to, it's all going to have an official timeline and, and all this stuff. And so here, here too, especially because we're picking up the middle of it, I, I really think you could feel that like, and now he's got the kid's sidekick who's going to help him do the internet stuff going forward. And I mean, honestly, I was like, Boyd Holbrook could have popped up again. I wouldn't have surprised except that he gets killed off. But I was like, legitimately like, he seems like a character who could come back again. But instead they, they closed out his arc. Right. Uh, no, um, I, I think, I think you can definitely see elements of that. This is this is meant to be um, an installment within a, a series, and and it uh, and it's very it very consciously uh, calls back. It gets a Sam Spade reference in there um, mm-hmm. when when they're 
talking about detectives and and explaining what ex, explaining what exactly um, what exactly they do in the uh, when he's talking with the kid, I I feel like you know this wants to position itself in in the you know that line of, of the story noir detective who wants to draw the draw the through line um, and and uh, and and I'll allow it. It's it, it works. It's, yeah, like it's just knowing enough to right. be like we oh. all kind of we all know the source material. We're not going to pretend otherwise. But it's not like turning to the camera and winking every five minutes. No, I agree. It, it's a right a right beat. Um, and then like. You know, it has some good set pieces. The uh, the the walk among the tombstones, followed by the uh, the home invasion bit. Like yes, that worked yeah, pretty all, well. Uh, it was a that was a great final stretch that it goes into. Uh, we got some Liam Neeson. We got that that great punch through the window. Um, uh, so so action. Liam Neeson is in full swing here too. You know what this. Um, what tonally this this strikes me a lot like is a giallo. And, oh, sure. Yeah, and I totally. mean, I think I think Harbor is what pushes it into that realm. Like yeah. you, like oh, having like that human pair of black gloves of a, and a, yeah, some creepier phone calls, and yeah, you'd be a hundred percent right there. Uh, but yeah, like the the his, his treatment of women definitely feels um, drawing from that. That it's, line of yeah, it's got that lurid sensationalism mm-hmm. going in. It's got the particularly demented villain and and um, yeah. and and just the way and, and it doesn't have high aspirations. It's got aspirations toward cheap thrills and uh, and all of that. I think makes it a very much in that giallo. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I think that's a spot on reference. What did you think of uh, the scene with the? Grave digger slash bird man. Uh, uh, I, I think that that exists in the in the you know long tradition of of weirdo side characters that are are stop offs on a uh, yeah. On a I mean, journey. I I can see that. Like, it doesn't feel as fun to me as as we've gotten in in many of our L.A. and California. Like even. Well, that's not a good example, but yeah, because overall the movie doesn't to me does, doesn't feel like the like. Can you believe this it, wild cast of characters? Honestly, it plays it, it plays him very very. The you're a weirdo, Jonas kind of line. Like, sure, I, I mean, what it reminded it, me of is is, is um, uh, True Detective. Like that to me felt uh, like yeah. a. These like, guys are so fucked up; it's bordering supernatural. I'd rather walk off this ledge. Because I fear them more than I fear God or you, um, and so which, it, it which, just gets like a little. It gets, and I think it gets weird in a way that detective movies generally don't. Right? Like, again, like usually detective movies are like, what an interesting cl- collection of characters, and this felt to me a little bit more unsettling and like something is is off. I think it's super smart that you brought up True Detective because um, what what is uh year wise that's got to be yeah that's, that's like, like right prior. um that's yeah that's absolutely playing a part on on the general consciousness here of what what noir is that first season is very much informing a lot of points that i see that are are you know played differently here but but still it it's uh i think i think you can feel that influence carrying over into the the story beats here 
Yeah, and even like visually, you know, it's it's got sort of the same washed out um, color palette as as a lot of what True Detective was doing. Yeah, um, agreed. And there, uh, uh, and my quick my quick googling is realizing that that the first season of True Detective was 2014, so they're right right at the, oh, same, at the same time. Same wow. time. So or that was like 2011. Uh, Wow. Yeah, I thought I thought it was I thought it was a touch earlier than that too. But they're coming out right around I'm around oh, the same time. Okay. Well, maybe not. Maybe they're just sort of you know it's in the air. Yeah. <laughs> um. So the last thing I wanted to bring up with this was it, it just the movie like really makes a point that it is 1999. Everybody's getting ready for Y2K, and that is a change from the book because the book was originally released in '92. So like that choice is a specific choice. You see it with um, Harbor's line, you know, uh, people never know what the right thing to fear is or whatever when he sees people worrying about Y2K. And of course, the implication is they should be afraid of him. Um, Did that, like, pay off for you or really provide, like, a coherent or consistent theme? No, I don't think it's, I don't think it's um, utilized consistently enough to to really have much overall effect um it's it's not a it's not a distraction it's not it's not it's not weird there's nothing nothing wrong with it but you know as far as choices to to you know slightly disrupt setting um i it i don't think it makes much of a a thematic point uh there's not added resonance from it not not for me, and you're not watching it for those reasons. Right. Um, like it, it's not. I don't know. It's not like Big Lebowski deciding to jump back into Gulf War and and um, H. W. Bush doublespeak and uh, and it, I don't know, thriving in that kind of war zone environment to to heighten the Vietnam references and uh, and all, like something that you can actually pick up more uh, uh, more thematic residents throughout this doesn't need it no one's looking for it there it's uh i don't think it really heightens anything for me yeah um but no still just like a fun you know i feel like this harkens back to a lot of those 40s and 50s b-movie crime programmers that we've we've talked about in the past just like it's it's gonna give you the juice and nothing more than the juice but it's pretty good juice so um, I, I, for one, want more straight up genre pieces like this. This is what this is. And, and, and overall, I don't know that I would say that there's a big gap in my enjoyment between this and Gone Baby Gone, but like ultimately Gone Baby Gone is, is, is aspiring to something greater, I feel, whereas this is hitting its mark. Mm-hmm. And, yes. I, and I really respect that. And uh, and had a great time with it. Right. Oh, totally. But that's the thing is, like, if you release this now, it would be on. Well, I guess this is a Liam Neeson movie, and that's what's going to sell. But you know, probably still, it would be in and out of theaters in a week, and then would wind up on Peacock. Yeah. Um. And and you know, these are the kind of things that are great for, like you said, it's like a sun, Sunday Sunday afternoon watch or something like that, or just a late night um, binge. I hey. This is what dad cinema is about. Uh, yeah. 
Well, let's talk about it, right? So I, I really do think that this is an interesting evolution of the power fantasy of the original pulp novels, right? And when, if you go back and listen to, or if you remember from our earlier episodes when we're looking at Marlowe and Sam Spade and Mike Hammer, and there is that, like, depending on when they were released, either leading into James Bond and and that strand of action pulp and then that feeding back into it. But in terms of always being the smartest guy in the room, the one who can take a punch and hit back harder, the one who can get any girl that he wants, like all those those same power fantasies of James Bond are, are present in the PI. And it's I think it's interesting how that's kind of evolved here where there isn't as much of that like I mean, like the the sex has kind of gone away, right? Like there is it's not as much about oh that fantasy. It is just about like being able to enact change, right? Like these are the guys. I mean, maybe not so much kind of maybe gone, which is trying to you know set up an interesting ethical question to grapple with, but especially walk amongst the tombstones. It is at the end of the day, you're the guy who knows what to do. And we'll do the right thing, and we'll restore justice. And in the, it is feels also very much of a piece with like the power fantasy of superheroes, which is why I brought up Zack Snyder. That like in both cases, you are a vigilante working outside of the law to restore justice because the system has failed, and so it is you know proto fascist. Only you can, only one man has the ability to with a few key supporters who understand that he knows what is right to do can restore justice and peace to the world. Yeah. And I, I mean, you, you I know you mentioned Zack Snyder, but I, I'm certainly the, the Nolan Batman trilogy um, and, and that kind of approach. I mean, that's what that, that, that really commercializes, right. This, this, sol- this solitary hero who is, you know, um, uh, contending with all of the the grime of the city and just trying to do what's right and I, I like I, I satisfying that that darker edge too. That's 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 totally fair. I feel like my personal read. I agree that like that um, Nolan is doing a similar thing of like elevating quote unquote pulpy material by treating it seriously and you know, shooting it well and all that. But I feel like, and maybe this is just sort of him being the one in a, you know, one in a million, but like he's able to elevate it while still not being defensive about it. And there's something, I, I, I'm definitely influenced a lot by, and I think I've referenced his work before, but film critic, film, film critic Hulk, um, who's an online writer, um <clears throat> in his discussion of, of Zack Snyder's work and the like inherent defensiveness of, of his stuff where it is this like, you know, comic books are real art and you know, it's not just about big men with big muscles punching each other. And like, I love comic books. Uh, there's, there've been some great comic book movies and I think there's some great comic books that are great art. You know, I think a lot of the given run of us, any specific DC or Marvel property is largely like corporate grist fun corporate grist but corporate grist nonetheless and not and not high art and so i that that examination of of snyder's like approach and why he resonates in turn with a lot of guys who are like 
No, I don't get, I, I'm not embarrassed about loving comic books. You should be embarrassed for not loving them because they're real. There is to me a little bit of that in just how dark and gritty these, these stories are, that it is like, this isn't just, you know, this isn't just nonsense books for fun. This is about real shit, you know? And like, I don't know that that's where the Snyder comes in for me. Uh, no, I, th- I, I think that's, I think that's fair, but I think it, complicating is that but, like just how different to me, these, the aspirations of these movies are that's and fair. where, where I see the gone baby gone being something that is, that is trying to be about a big question and be, and, and it is trying to court some awards attention and it is, it is trying to play into what you expect out of a prestige picture. And maybe it's because, Mystic River had that a few years prior and, mm-hmm. and the Hain source material combined with Affleck comeback and, and, you know, selecting the right kind of project for that. Uh, whereas, whereas Walk Among Tombstones is, is at no point attempting any of those things. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't find it necessarily being de- defensive about anything. I think it's just leaning into the, the cheap thrills of it all and, and giving, giving you what you want, which is, Liam Neeson punching a guy through a window and, and it is what uh, I want. That's true. So it's hard for me to look at them in, in like that, in, in that term kind of together, but, uh, but the grim dark of it all, uh, absolutely. They're they're These are both, the, these are both relatively humorless movies. Yes. Um, well, I think that's the other thing that I wanted to discuss is like, what, what does it say about the PI and what kind of PI can, and we'll, we're nearing the end of the season. We'll have a wrap up. We'll really get into this, but I, I do find it interesting. You know, here we've got very quote unquote grounded approaches, right? Like uh, setting aside actual realism, these are going for cinematic realism, right? That these are believable. One's a kid who's in over his head. The other is this jaded and over the hill ex cop. And like that there isn't that humor and that they're neither of these guys are Marlowe or Sam Spade and are, or my camera and are trying to be, is there room for that anymore? Okay. So I, I would, I would put forward this and we're going to come back to this when we wrap up the whole season. I know, but, but when you think about, when you think back on, on, on our season and when you think about our, our detective archetype and how important the actor behind him is and, and I, you know, putting aside the, the, the very comic, takes the deliberately the big Lebowski's right um when you think about about Bogart when you think about Elliot Gould when you think about Jack Nicholson there is um, of course they're they're all larger than life in their own way but they're also all three of them have a certain mischievousness about them mm-hmm. that I think lends not to an outright comic portrayal but it lends a lot of levity to to their interactions and in how they observe the world and interact with it. And that's something that is just not in Liam Neeson or Casey Affleck's playbook. Um, Nor does it have to be, but it just sets up a a very different approach to the detective that we, that we have here. No, that's right. And I think that that also speaks to what the previous function of the PI was in terms of, you know, it was a character who could move through any situation, right? Like the the classic PI could go to the mansion on the hill and then the slum at, at the bottom of the hill. And he'd be just at ease in either place 
because he he viewed everything with a slight iron ironic distance and jaded disposition but also with a sense of humor about everything and in that joker mentality I mean, like in a very like classic medieval the joker is the person who's allowed to speak truth to power because he's a fool kind of sense I, yeah i think that that is like part of why that character works in that way and that that is something that has moved away and again it's become like grounded realism where like both of these guys are not going to any mansions on the hill right like these are sorted cases dealing with sorted people in a sorted world and so that's just what the the scope of expression that's allowed these pieces yeah um it's it's such a it's a narrowed version of what our our detective is they're not the the world is not um is not open to them like i I like how you put it there um they're uh they, they can't just move between any space that they that they want they they exist within a really specific slice of society and it and it hovers closer to the bottom than um or in the darker corners than than to those those mansions did you watch <clears throat> confess fletch i did not no uh it's fun i i honestly it, it came out after we put the season and our plan together i don't know that it would fit in or even that it something we need to cover but um anyway i it's it is an interesting kind of return to that mischievous joker figure but it is also like a comedy crime movie right like it is it's not as it's not as much of a comedy as like the chevy chase version but uh it is definitely in in a comedic realm and so it is sort of hearkening back to the here is a outsider character who can go into any situation because he treats everything with a bit of ironic smirk and a, and a interesting comeback. Um, I, anyway, I just thought of it because the uh, podcast I mentioned before, uh, the next picture show did a double pairing of the long goodbye and confess uh. Fletch as both, again, these sort of Joker mischievous characters. Yeah. And I'm, I, I'm, intrigued to circle back on that because i think it's going to be kind of uh vital to our our wrap-up of our detective's journey and where we where we found him but it's a this is a and and next week's going to have its own separate angle you know we're talking about how like bleak this this week is but next week's episode is going to be a full 180 oh my goodness um and yet we'll still be we're we're still not in that joker territory it's 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 its own yes um, that's very true it's, it's its own thing they're clowns in some way but, but not necessarily right. not necessarily like what we're we have with bogart or with uh with nicholson with, with gould no unfortunately <laughs> i mean that's a, just i love the movies but i also well we'll talk about these movies uh in the meantime let's let's wrap up this episode so tristan What's in the box in honor of Kiss Me Deadly? What's something you recently watched that's so good it deserves to be glowing in a suitcase and I suppose capable of nuclear fission? Oh, good. Um, I've I've been uh, I've been on a kick. I've watched a lot. Um, I'm I'm doing one of my my Bollywood binges. So I've, I've had on Letterbox. Uh, yeah, I've <laughs> I've been blowing up Letterbox with my, what I've been after lately. But there's one that I I. Caught me totally by surprise. Um, I, I I think that it will make an excellent entry at some point for uh, for a, a future series here when we 
when we want to talk about photography, voyeurs, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, there's a a great uh, Bollywood noir from 1983 called Jane B. Doyaro um, that is about two. It's 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 very wacky. Um, it's about two photographers who are getting into the business and and trying to lure customers in, and they get caught up um, taking photographs to try and uncover a vast real estate conspiracy uh, occurring across Mumbai. And, um, and and it's it's shot uh, rather well, and it's it's it really kind of leans into like the cosmopolitan nature of of Mumbai, and and you get lots of shots of of high rises, but also of slums of of, of infrastructure, and and it just kind of positions you right in it, and and it does hit home hard the the uh, government corruption, the mm-hmm. um, the big business corruption. Um, in a way I wasn't necessarily expecting it to stick to. And then it just goes totally gloriously off the rails into this, this, uh, the back, I don't know, 40 minutes hour of it is just this nonstop madcap farce that still holds on to those themes, but it gets progressively wilder and wilder. And there is a, there is a, a corpse dragged around for a large portion of, of, of the the back end of this movie that just keeps getting worked into scenes it is it's wild wow. um and very very enjoyable very madcap uh johnny b Doyaro. uh okay. and uh, i hope we get to it at some sounds point. like it has everything i mean as the Dipama fan in this duo i am agitating for a voyeur's season so i'm sure it'll happen yeah i think this would uh slot in Particularly well, it it outright references blow up. So um, well, there you go. There's also that. Uh, Let's see. On my end, I'm gonna I'm gonna pitch two movies that I really enjoyed. Uh, Why? Do three in quick succession. One was uh, I finally watched Before Sunrise. Great movie. Doesn't need my help getting (laughs) getting uh, the word out there. I look forward to slowly working my way through the rest of the trilogy. I watched Hit the Road, um, which is an Iranian I really film. See that. Uh, if your local library has Hoopla, then you can watch it through Hoopla. Uh, I think it's also on Showtime now, it looks like. Uh, but it's by uh, Panah Panahi, who is the son of uh, Jafar Panahi, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and his feature debut, and let me tell you, he's got the goods too. It's. Uh, like it's uh, as a fan of a fan of Schrader's transcendental style. Like this, to me, feels like a transcendental style movie. It it, it plays it very even keeled and very focused on just the mechanics of of this trip that the whole family is on. But then in the final, I don't know, fifteen twenty minutes, just cuts loose and uh, it gets you. It gets you good. Some great use of of music. And uh, the the kid performance in it is fantastic, like truly uh, top tier child acting. Fine, that's hard. It's hard. No, like it, this movie would not work without this kid, and this, this kid nails it. Um, and then also, uh, I watched Frankenheimer's The Train, starring friend of the pod Burt Lancaster. Uh, <laughs> and it is, uh, you know, speaking of dad movies, if you're in the mood for. Uh, 
beautifully shot 1960s World War II art heist movie uh, where Burt Lancaster gets to kill some Nazis. Like, you, you can't get much, much better than this. It's uh, just, again, also speaking of pulp movies that know that they're pulp movies and deliver the goods, like, this does that. Plus, it has just enough theme to give it some extra oomph without overplaying it. Uh, and also, Frankenheimer was a madman and uh, just, like, destroyed multiple trains for real to make this movie. <laughs> Um, oh God! I don't. I've not seen this. I I really need to do something about it that. It is just a delight. It's uh, you know, uh, like, I, it, it's a real. As I, I think, I put in my letterbox is a real uh, minute part of minute at work cinema. You know, it feels very much of a piece with, um, Hawks or Carpenter or Man or um, Cameron. You know, any of these guys who who's returned to the idea of like a team of men engaged in the process of doing the work and it is through that that action and that labor theme and character is revealed this is definitely of a piece with those and it's just about this team of french resistance fighters uh you know you do have to get over the burt lancaster as a frenchman part of the concept but once you're you know as long as you get on board with that it it's uh just I'm, really two-fisted fun i'm on board uh with anything burt lancaster wants to do i i'm I love the leopard. He's Italian aristocracy there. So um, uh, he can be French. It's fine. Why not? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, those are my Before Sunrise, Hit the Road, and The Train. Thanks, as always, for joining us on this excavation of the darkest, grittiest of genres. You can find us online at celluloiddirt.com and on Letterboxd under the handle Celluloid Dirt. We'll see you next time when we get weird with it. Uh, and we return to L.A. for uh, our last installment and kind of wrap up our our s little sub-series of the series on, on Weird L.A. The movies we'll be watching are uh, 2014's Inherent Vice and 2020's Under the Silver Lake. Until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a Strange Phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. <laughs>